Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson and uh, today's guest on the podcast is a guy called Max Barry who is not only one of the most brilliant Australian authors of the last 20 years but is a lifelong friend of mine. Uh, we went to high school together and we were mates together at high school, played in a high school theatre sports team and uh, even though we don't see each other that much uh, these days... Um, somebody that I have just uh, respected and admired for my entire life and has been a bit of a role model to me and a sounding board and uh, his friendship uh, and inspiration uh, of his vision and dedication to his craft and the arts has always been very ins- inspiring to me. So I hope you're going to enjoy this chat. We actually recorded this more than a year ago. We recorded it at the Comedy Festival in 2014, uh, back when I was doing the first series of this podcast and I didn't really know what it was going to be or who was going to be on it and not that I really am sure of those things yet, but we're getting a clearer idea. It was so long ago that there wasn't even theme music uh, at the start, something I actually discuss at the start of this podcast. I haven't, I haven't cut any of it out. You can hear it all how I imagined it was back then. Uh, okay, we'll get to that in just a second. But speaking of the, the theme music, some people ask me about this. It's mentioned on some of the podcasts, but it's by a band called St. Hughes. And uh, I've played the whole song at the end a couple of times called I Like You, but uh, Nick at St. Hughes actually did the theme music for the podcast for me and then uh, they've released that song. You can download that on iTunes or buy that if you want to, you know, support those guys and and help them out. That'd be really cool. Um, Oh, I'm going to (coughs) sneeze. Oh, my God. Uh, Gesundheit. Can you self-gesundheit? I wasn't going to say bless you. That would be weird to like self-bless. Although, I mean, I guess on a deeper spiritual level, if you are, you know, your own manifestation of God, then really saying bless you to yourself is probably a very, it's very mindful. It's in the moment. All right, I'm talking shit. I apologize for that. Uh, let's save that for the podcast. I'm going to do the quick plugs. I'm in London uh, for two weeks, at the first two weeks of June at the Soho Theatre in the West End doing my free will tour. I will be doing the free will show at the Nerd Melt Theatre on July the 11th in Los Angeles. There's a bunch of other gigs in LA around that time, set list and a bunch of other spots at gigs. But uh, the whole show, free will at Nerd Melt on, uh, Nerd Melt on uh, July the 11th and then I think on July the 26th. I am at the Montreal Just for Laughs Festival doing Free Will as well. Uh, first weekend of August, I'm at the Enmore Theatre doing the show there. And uh, then I think the 10th of October, I am doing Free Will in Perth. Uh, uh, both of those are now on sale. So if you're in one of those places, Sydney or Perth, and you want to come and see the new show, come and see the new show. If you can't make it to see a new show, uh, buy my DVD, Illuminati, which is you know available in all the places that you find DVDs. Um, if you like Max, please uh, search him out after this and uh, read his books. They are brilliant. Uh, I'm, I'm not being biased. They are just, it's, it's fantastic that somebody from this country is so wonderful and creative and clever and satirical. And uh, I'm very proud of him and I hope you enjoy this podcast.
Hello and welcome to Willosophy. I am Will Anderson and I'm still not really sure how we start the podcast. It still doesn't have theme music. I'm not sure it will ever have theme music. I'm starting to, like, normal shows seem like they have theme music, but this mm. one has never had theme music and it feels like it just gets into it, which mm. is kind of what this conversation is. So anyway, mm. I, I, I never introduce my guests uh, quick enough and then I start talking and then they want to take part. So I'm going to introduce you. Well, actually, I'm going to get you to introduce you because that's what I'm doing on the podcast now because I like to hear what people say when I say, who are mm. you? Right, yeah. Well, first of all, can I just say that a pregnant pause might be a good way to start the Willosophy podcast, just for people to think, just to think. about yeah, about things for themselves. Yeah, but uh, in this day and age, to be honest, they wouldn't do that. they go, there's no. something wrong with my podcast. Skip through this silence. Right. This is bullshit. <laughs> well, look, I'm, I'm Max Barry. I, I write books is what I tend to summarize myself in three words. Mm. I, I write books. Uh, I um, also run this political web game in my spare time, um, and those two worlds um, – don't really overlap much. I tend to be known for one or the other. So it's, oh. so it's a weird kind of dual life that, that That's interesting to me already. And we'll get to uh, all the, you know, various things about those. But I like that for a start, that duality. Because I always imagine in my head without that those two worlds were intrinsically combined. Right. But they're not at all. Yeah, no, programming and, and writing fiction don't have as much overlap as you might think. Right. <laughs> Completely different people. So, okay, well, I think we'll at some stage try to explore those two sides of your personality because I think they're probably there. But I want to jump into this straight away, which is the idea of do you have a philosophy? How did you feel when I asked you, like, you know, whether you had something that you lived your life by? And, and I guess what's your answer to that question? Yeah, well, I did think about it when, when you asked me to do the podcast. And I thought, you know, it, it's, it maybe sounds like a trite answer. But for me, it comes back to um, a dream I had um, when I was still in high school. I was probably yep. about 14, 15 years old. And um, there was this girl who went to our school called Jenny, um, who my best mate uh, was in love with, basically. Uh, and I thought was pretty all right, too. But yep. but uh, but. Yeah, Jenny was was this pretty pretty amazing girl. And one night I had this dream where we were riding a bus together and Jenny was me and Jenny were just hanging out in the stairwell of this bus. And in the dream we were boyfriend and girlfriend. Mm. And we weren't doing anything particular. I just knew somehow. Right, you we just were. knew, yeah. Yeah. That and sense so, you have in dreams. Yeah, 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 that's right, where it makes complete sense at yeah. the time. So I, I woke up from this dream and it's yeah, you know, one of those dreams where you realise, oh wait a minute, that's not reality and it's yeah. incredibly disappointing. Right. You try to go back to sleep? Did you try to go back to sleep? I just, I just felt such a sense of loss. Yeah. I, I had this moment right. and and I thought, wow, it was it was as clear to me then as, as anything's ever been in my life that I I needed I needed this girl in my mm-hmm. life, and um, we uh, we went through uh, many years of sort of ups and downs, and me trying to convince her that I was the right guy for her, and and I eventually succeeded, uh, uh, and I we married very young, we married as teenagers, mm-hmm. and it's. Um, I really can't conceive of who I would be without her because she's been in my life since since I was a teenager. And when you're with someone like that, it's you define yourself as they see you. And, mm. and you, it's yeah. Look for me, it's it's I'm the guy who married Jen, uh, and she helps me see who I am. That is really fascinating. That's the first time we've had somebody say something from that perspective, and I do find that. 
I find that incredibly fascinating. Let's talk about the idea of the dream first. Okay. Now, do you have any sense that that dream was just anything more than a dream? Is Do you think that was just your subconscious telling you that that's what you wanted? Do you think it was an actual, you know, sign? Like, mm. I mean, I talk a lot, I, I joke a lot about the idea that in, in comedy, um, people are so, like, there's so many anti-religious comedians, right? You know, and yet the way that we talk about, you know, our calling to comedy is so similar to the way that right. people talk about their calling to religion. You know, yeah. I knew it's all you know what i had to do you know i had to commune with people i had to do this like it's it's the same sort of thing do you Mm. think that was just a dream like in that sense or because it's become something that has defined so much of your life since then Mm. do you think it was something more than that i think look i think dreams can can be all kinds of things sometimes they can just be random burps the brain does because that's what it does um there's a a nice theory that the brain practices emergencies in your sleep which i quite like it's like uh, it runs through these various scenarios and you figure out how you would escape from them as like a survival mechanism that's helped you know what i have that dream a lot like i have a lot of end of the world scenarios i'm hiding out how i'm getting away from things scenarios i have a lot of those when it happens you'll be prepared you'll know should you grab the baseball bat should you run down the stairs and you learn a lot about yourself in those dreams because you know when you're in a dream like you you really are you could do whatever you want i run and hide a lot (laughs) like a lot (laughs) a lot of my success in end of world zombie scenarios is finding somewhere Mm. that no one finds and letting everyone else die yeah they're not going to make a movie out of that one no yeah um so what about the idea like the broader idea if you like give into that idea of like you know Mm. the quantum uh, you know physics and the quantum universe and the idea that well more the idea of like that you know there are other universes where other things are happening and maybe our dreams are some sort of touching on you know because yeah no no i wouldn't i wouldn't go there i I can believe like i was interested in this girl and the brain my brain probably suggested you know wouldn't it be great if you guys were together i'd certainly had that thought consciously before but but what the dream was presented as a reality that just felt so amazing that uh that I, i knew i had to pursue it the thing that's amazing about that to me and it is very fascinating because I don't think that you, 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 there's not many people, you know, we always talk about the idea of high school sweethearts, but there's not very many people who are actually high school sweethearts. Right. And as someone who's like a 40 year old man and still working out what I'm going to do in my life in that regard, the idea that at 15 years old, you could meet somebody that you were going to literally spend, you know, the rest of your life, you know, with, mm. I mean, it's pretty mind-blowing yeah. and you kind of thought that at the time right like that's got to have been a gradual yeah process well, firstly let me say i this isn't something that i would talk about uh, outside of a situation like this mm. because i mean to me I, i'm really proud of the fact that jen and i've been married for 21 years now and our marriage is is so much longer than all of our friends and right uh and you know it's it's been it's been the most amazing thing in my life uh but but I would never go make a big deal out of this to other people because, uh, you know, it's it's like saying I've got this amazing, wonderful thing. I can't imagine how life could right. be tolerable without it. How are you going? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 yeah. I mean, it's. So I defined. mean, yeah, yeah, that would come across badly if you yeah, said it like yeah. that. <laughs> right. But I think it's fascinating to people because people obviously like one of the biggest motivating factors in life, uh, you know, work obviously is, is a big one for people. I think in a lot of ways that how we deal with death, you know, how we find meaning in our lives and how we deal with death. And the other one is like love and relationships, really, the things that, you know, mostly define the major parts of our lives. So, you know, it's 
to find that at that age. There must have been times along that journey. Were you just sure? Were you just sure when you like when you guys got married young? Were you just like, no, this is fine. This is gonna. I was completely be- sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, looking back, I look at the wedding photos and I can understand where my parents were coming from because um, there we were, um, both nineteen, and uh, I, I remember telling my dad, I said, you know, we'd been going out for maybe uh, maybe about nine or ten months at this point, and we were both completely sure. There was no doubt that we wanted to get married. And I told my dad, and it was his reaction was as if I had physically hit him. He right. then rocked back, uh, and he was shocked, and he just kept asking, why? Why, Max? Why do you have to get married? Why, why don't you just live together? Mm. And... These are reasonable questions, but but there's no there's no reasonable answer for them. You can't right. explain to someone why you have to get married. You just feel that you do, uh, and and my mum was was shocked, but came around quite a bit quicker uh, to the whole idea. Uh, but no, I, it, it was completely obvious to me, and in a way that I can't really describe, except that I felt it very strongly, as strongly as I felt anything in my life. And I knew that, that this was right. The thing that fascinates me about it is that the idea that you were 19, you're right. Like, cause when I look back on 19, now I remember what I felt like at 19. I did feel like I knew everything and I could yeah. do anything and everything right. was possible. But when I look back at me at 19, I think you were a fucking dickhead who knew nothing about anything. And you like made you know the biggest mm. decision well, of your life at that point. Someone who knew you were nineteen, yeah, that was yeah, pretty that was right. Yeah, yeah, yeah you know, people are great. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, what I mean, did you think that you were a particularly mature person? For have you ever always felt a little bit older, a little bit sort of? Is that where your brain's been? Like you no, knew what you wanted so. to do? No, look, I look back now, and I think the same as you. I think you know, gee, this person at nineteen was. Yeah, wildly arrogant in some ways to think that he knew how things were going to work out. And and I can't really make any better sense of it now. I, I just look at myself in those photos and it looks like this kid who, who knew somehow. And I don't, I don't really know why. I don't think I was especially wise at that age or anything. I just was lucky enough to, to meet someone that, that I connected with that strongly. And it was obvious. And what's the, I mean, without wanting to delve too much into it, like, to be together for that long, you're not only um, like, you know, in a relationship together, but the, both of you are actually going, like growing up together still. Yeah, we, like, you know, like we got all the same in-jokes. Right. So it, just, it just worked out that way. But it also means that you're going through different challenges at different stages of your life at the same time. You know, like you're both, like, as in like that thing of like establishing careers or trying yeah. to like, you know, even deal with like the idea of like aging. You know, it's, you're hitting yeah. 30 around the same time. Yeah. You're hitting 40 around the same time. Like all those things that people have their own individual crises about, you're kind of going through those together now that must in some ways make it better but in some ways might be challenging as well i would think yeah we we certainly turn into different people and you can you can tell that the relationship does change uh, as as years go by and at 40 we're both different people to who we were at 19 right and i mean what connects you though is you know you've gone through that journey together uh and so it's yeah, it's it's a real privilege being able to watch someone grow old. Although it sounds like such a cliche to mm. to watch someone else change with you, uh, and and you probably need to to touch base with that occasionally. You can't just sort of take for granted the idea right. that oh, they've been with you for for fifteen twenty years, you know, uh, and just relax. Especially when you have kids, you know, there's a few more pressures on the relationship, and and things do become a bit more. Um, Strain. You're trying to pack so much in. It's easy to, to jettison all those fun parts of your relationship that was all you had when it was a relationship at 25. Uh, but yeah, no, it's 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 amazing. And I mean, for me, fundamentally, it's just I have enormous trouble thinking of of how I would have 
lived my life without her over any of this period because it's it's a, it's a touchstone for me. I, it's someone who who reminds me who I am, and without that, I don't know what I'd do. But how how do you make sure that you also uh, don't like? And it, this is something that I think I would be feel I I would. F- fall into the trap of doing if I was in that situation is if you have someone else who whose love and helps define you through their eyes mm-hmm. how do you f- not fall into the trap of just being who they want you to be rather than being who you still need to be yourself yeah it's a good question I think I think what happens is you know as you go through life especially if you're doing something in public like you're publishing books or, or you're performing on stage or whatever yep. you're doing and you have a lot of other people telling you what they think of you. Uh, and those opinions range from you're a genius, you're a god, through to you're the worst creature to ever work the face of the earth, or yep. the face of the earth. Why My God, the same people, are, kill yourself. Some people are tweeting you as me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I, mean, it. it's, I mean, it's insane. And this is like a thing that ties into nation states, the, the political game I do, because um, some of the people who play that uh, are just insane. Mm. So... Um, there's there's all these people trying to tell you who you are throughout all your life uh, and you have to pick the voices that make sense to you uh, and also find your own voices telling you who you are so it's um explore that idea a little bit more i I like what you're saying but tell me a bit more of what you're saying there yeah well look when i was a teenager i didn't really know who i was Mm. i i and i guess the other thing too is when you try to find out who you are, it's not like there is this one person and you dig and you dig and you find them and, and, and that's you. you. You craft yourself as well. You change the parts of who you are and, and that's what growing as a person is. It's, it's not just discovering who you are, the core of yourself that you want to protect, but it's also about shaving off some of those parts of you that you don't like, that, right. that you need to to become a better person. That's something that people uh, sometimes aren't interested in. Yeah, it's, it's, like this it's idea of so touchy-feely, the right. idea that you need to change yourself. But you do. You do yeah. need to evolve as a person. Right, of course you do. And if, you're the, if you believe all the same things you believed when you were 15 mm. about anything, then you're probably a fucking idiot. Yeah. Like, and you haven't moved on, you know? You've got, like, yes, mm. there's some great things about you, but you, you weren't just born perfect. Like, there's things about you that are annoying and shitty and whatever, and you have to deal with them if you want to evolve into a better person. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And um, I think that process of, of finding out who you are and who you want to be uh, is something that, that having that partner there with you just makes it a bit easier because it's someone whose judgment you trust. It's someone who... You, you want to impress uh, and if you're making them happy it's just it's an, it's a natural reinforcement so i think it, it certainly makes it easier than than going through and having all these other people's opinions telling you doing this right yep. you're doing this wrong you're this sort of person you know that uh without having that touchstone it's just it's just a, a sort of a base level that that props you up let's uh use the topic of feedback to get us into the idea of writing because i want to go back and explore the whole story but uh, but Obviously, when you are a writer, you have to deal with other people's ideas and feedback like all the time. Like, I mean, you have an editor. That's part of the writing process. And you're going to get notes and you're going to get feedback and you're going to get criticisms and you are going to get, you know, a range, as you said, a range of feedback on your books, even just from fans. I like this one. I didn't like the last one. Whatever, you know? Like, even people who like you sometimes say terrible things to you, right? Oh, yeah, of course. how do you deal with that on a whole range of feedback levels? Like, firstly, maybe on a professional level, what's your relationship between your work and feedback? Yeah, I've got to say, writing books is probably one of the least interactive art forms you can have. It's mm. because you you create the thing all by yourself, and you go through a few drafts. And what I'm doing when I'm writing those drafts is I'm seeing what makes me happy. 
there's the idea of an audience is is somewhere in the back of my head but but what I'm really doing is crafting a story that that makes me personally uh, react well to it so it's it's a really solitary process what I do uh, when you get to the point of uh, okay there's an editor and they give you some feedback well you know that's really interesting and I show other people drafts as well but that that's all fairly late and that's when you're starting to move from this story that you created all by yourself mm-hmm. uh, and starting to turn it into something that is for other people it doesn't start like that you have to move it from one to the other that's interesting to me because my, doing my stand-up show I always say to people the only night you see what I thought the show was going to be is the first night of the tour. Yeah. After that, it becomes everybody else's show. Like it's affected mm-hmm. night to night by what the, the the audience likes, what you know, other people are telling me, what you know, the way I change it around. Mm-hmm. But so that terrifies me a bit, like your, the idea of what you do, because I can change it every night. I can work yeah. on it every night. And two months in, like this show is not the same show it was two months ago, and it's better for it. That's yes. not to say yes. the old show wasn't good, but this is a better show now. But, you know, you kind of more present something. Like, mm. here is what I've been working on. And then you just put it out there and go, yeah. will and people like it? The feedback that you get, I would kill for. Because what I'm doing is I'm creating a book that exists in people's minds. It only exists in the, the minds of the readers. So I, I'm trying to imagine how these words are going to react in someone else's brain. Right. But when it happens, I can't see it. Uh-huh. Uh, and even if I do, they're just sitting there with their yeah. eyes moving on the page. There's, there's no feedback. So, so I, That would yeah. be creepy. That would actually <laughs> yeah. be creepy if you're just staring at them. You know when people are reading something funny too, unless it's laugh out loud hilarious, they right. have no expression. Yep. They'll tell you afterwards, oh, that was really funny, but, <laughs> but they're not actually physically reacting. It's entirely internal. That is creepy. Anyway, uh, yeah, so this idea of, of trying to create a story for someone else's brain, but you don't really get to, to see in that process. Um, I mean, from a purely t- technical perspective, what it means, uh, I found, is leaving gaps in the story, not trying to push your idea of the story onto the readers, but instead throwing out the little hints that allows the story to grow in their brain. Um, so it's, it's, a re- it's a strange kind of interaction because I'm, I'm setting the story up, but someone else is actually turning it into a real thing. Uh, let's go back. Uh, when did you know that you wanted to write for a living? Because that... that I imagine there's people, you know, everyone kind of feels like they have a book in them. I'm sure that you've, you know, heard that in the same way as everyone thinks they can be a stand-up comedian because they've told a joke once. But you actually did it. Like, you you sat down and you wrote a book. Like, you know, when did you first think you were going to do that? And then talk us through what happened until you wrote your first book. Okay. I, I always wanted to write books. Uh, this is another thing where I've kind of always known it. But um, I, I just always loved writing stories um, from as long as I can remember. I used to write short stories in high school um, featuring my classmates as characters and hand out these things around the classroom and found that was a good way to get a bit of attention at school because people love reading stories about themselves. Yep. <laughs> wrote a story about um, Jenny who, who um, went insane and had sex with an exchange student, got hit by a train. That was really popular with everyone <laughs> except Jen. <laughs> And uh, it was, it was, yeah. I, I, I knew that I couldn't expect to finish high school and then go out and write books for a living because that just wasn't financially possible. But it was, it was always what I, I wanted to do. Um, in fact, I remember this time. This is way back in high school um, where I was, I was having a hard time in year twelve. It's a very stressful year, and I started to get these. I, what I think, in retrospect, might have been panic attacks. There right. was like one time in assembly where. Uh, I was starting to feel dizzy for no good reason. I'd been having nosebleeds as well, so it was probably a physical thing there as well. But 
Um, I started to get a nosebleed. I was feeling dizzy and I left uh, and I started hyperventilating outside um, the assembly hall. I just couldn't stop breathing faster and faster. Uh, anyway, I, I went along to some um, so, some sort of specialist. I don't even know what she was, but you know, talked about some sort of therapist who talked about what stresses might be in my life and and how to deal with them. And she said, uh, "Okay, so so what are what are the some of some of the things that you feel you really have to achieve?" Uh, and I said, "Well, um, I I want to be the best writer in the world." <laughs> And and she had the exact same reaction as you did just then. She had to like this. Well, oh, that's that's a bit of a smirk. And yeah. uh, okay, nice. But uh, yeah, we're we're in sale, so yeah, uh, aim a little lower, please. <laughs> yeah, you can be the best writer for the Hayfield News. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, I probably I was at about fourteen. Right, so, that's yeah. true. Um, no, the uh, the <coughs> she, so she said this, and my reaction was, "Oh, fuck you! I, right. I can be the best writer in the world." Uh, now at, at forty one, I know I never will be, but um, that but was that's interesting to me that moment there because I think and I've, I've been talking about this a lot recently about like because I about the same age I really do believe that I started to think because we obviously the thing that we haven't probably explained is that we mm. went to high school together that we we've did. known each other since high school so uh, I you know have been hearing you tell these stories and it's lovely to hear what your perspective on these stories is because I saw some of this stuff you know secondhand or incidentally as it right. happened. Um, but, you know, around that time, I started to think, you know what, I want to be a comedian. Like, I would like to be a stand-up comedian. And there's something so inherently arrogant in that thought. That yes. As a, like a 15-year-old kid in sale, mm. like, that you can be like, I can, you know, I can be a stand-up comedian or I can be the best writer in the entire world. Mm. Where does that come from and how important is that in you actually going on to – how many people, mm. you know, how many people don't try – because yeah. I think the thing that you or I probably realise, and maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, but is that like you don't have to be anyone special to do these things. You just have to want to do something and, yes. and try hard and try to do it well and yes. hope people like it. Yeah. But, you know, there's not sort of like, you know, there wasn't a star over the stables the night you were born and three wise men came with book ideas. Right, and said, no, you know, no, not to, not to my knowledge. No, look, I've heard you talk about this, about the delusion being important, um, the delusion that you can go out on stage and make a whole bunch of people laugh just by talking. And I completely agree with that. And and I've, I've written about this many times, the idea that you, the only way to get through the first draft of a novel, um, many people want to write novels but, but never do, uh, and that's because it's really fucking difficult. Uh, it, it takes forever and you have to stay interested in a story for six months, 12 yeah. months, 18 months. Uh, you, you need to delude yourself that what you're doing is the greatest thing that anyone has ever done. And if you can do that, you can power through the inevitable crap first draft and, uh, and get to the point where you've actually got something worth reading or, or worth presenting to the world. But without that delusion, if, if you insist on being too critical of yourself and looking at the reality too early, then, yeah, it's incredibly destructive from a creative point of view. So, I mean, what I, what I think you had in high school i mean i i always thought that you in high school was someone who was going to do something and what you had was uh first of all an ability to perceive reality with with a fair degree of accuracy you could see the world as it really was to some degree and you also had the passion 
really not for anything in particular, but you had this desire. That's so true. Not for anything in particular, but for something. It changed around. I knew a bit. there was something. <laughs> but yeah, when you I were wasn't interested like in things. 15 year old Max Barry locking my career, locking my partner <laughs> for the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think there was a football career mooted at some yeah, point. Yeah, that's there, right. But, but yeah, no, I was thinking that when you said, if, like, yeah, you're doing everything that you wanted to do when you were 15, I'd be, I'd be married to Winona Ryder and playing football for the Western Bulldogs. Right. <laughs> Yeah, so um, so that 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 those two things are really important to have together, I think, because there are people who are really passionate about things but have no grip on reality, and they're interesting people, but but they don't. I don't think they really succeed um, in in the common sense of that that word um, in their lives. Uh, if you have someone who's very got a good grip on reality um, but no passion, then they can be a bit defeated because they want to do things, but they they fear that that what they can do won't be good enough. Uh, but put those two things together, the passion and some sort of reasonable sense of how the world works, and, and you have someone who can do things. Okay, so uh, I've told your story a lot, and this is the story, because uh, everyone always asks you, and I'm sure you get asked this a lot as well, which, when you do these sort of things, like, how do you get into it? Yeah. Like, what did you do? Like, you know, I want to be a writer. Should I go to writing school or should yeah. I, you know, do that sort of thing? Tell people what you did. Right, yeah, I have heard you tell this story, and it grows with each telling. Oh, so like, I'll, I'll like tell you. you tell the real story, <laughs> yeah, the real and then story. I'll, I'll yeah. It's probably I mean, half as interesting as the one you tell. Right, as as was the theme of my latest stand-up show. Right, sometimes I tell the stories better than they happened. The stories become yeah <laughs> their their own reality. Yeah, they become their own myth. So I um I I left high school wanting to write, but but I I wanted to basically find a career that would support me financially while I wrote in my spare time. So, so that's what I did. I went off to, to uni, um, I did a marketing degree at Monash Caulfield, and that was fascinating. I went into marketing because it was part analytical and part creative. It seemed yeah. like a good way to combine these two things that I was interested in, yeah. uh, which was not just the creative side, but I've always been interested in maths and, and physics and computing especially. So marketing seemed like a, a good mix. And that was really interesting. I learned all these things about how the world markets to us and how persuasion works. And it's it's amazing to get a look behind that curtain to see, oh, all these these parts of the world that I thought were just natural and genuine are actually constructed to right. produce a particular reaction. Uh, and the one I the one I always tell because I love it so much. The thing that I learned in in marketing school was um, just noticeable difference theory. This was my this is marketing in a nutshell for me. So just noticeable difference theory is based on the psychological research into how much an object has to change before the brain becomes alerted to that change. Uh-huh. And marketers use it to shrink the size of a chocolate bar by just less than the just noticeable difference. So right. you don't really notice it's getting smaller. And then they uh, they keep the price the same, so they're making more profit. And then they come out with a jumbo bar every now and again that goes back to the size it used to be. But yeah. now it's such a jump that you're like, wow, that is quite a bit bigger. Oh, my God. So so I'm learning these they do get smaller and smaller though like that is the one that I think of every time the other day I was I had some chocolate bar in my hand and I was like am I turning into a giant no (laughs) they're just subtly getting smaller it's like the great escape they're just taking a little bit of sand out at a time yeah that's exactly how it works okay so go go on so um so I did the marketing degree and um it made me feel like there was actually something to write about there but uh, it wasn't until I got my first real job um as a sales rep for Hewlett Packard selling enormous computer systems that I didn't understand to other businesses and i got to look at how the corporate environment worked from the inside 
which is amazing. You know, you go into a, a work environment and it's its own self-contained bubble. It's got right. its own idea of of um, what's right and what's wrong and what's cool and what's not. Um, I remember there was we used to wear name tags at Hewlett Packard, little ID tags, right? And you were supposed to clip them on your shirt pocket. Um, yeah, on your shirt pocket. But then one day I saw some guy walking around with one on his hip, like his belt, and, and no one was supposed to do that. And I was like, wow, that guy is pretty cool. <laughs> now, outside the company, right. of course, no one thought no that was one cool. No one thought it was cool. But inside, right. super cool. So He was the Fonz of Hewlett Packard. That's right. Yeah, yeah so I, I just found it amazing how you have these these own little self-contained cultures inside corporations. And I was, um, I was working for HP, which was a good job, actually. I, I worked with some great people and, and learned a lot. But I, I, I didn't want to do that with my life. The last thing I wanted to do was be 40 and selling computer systems. This is a theme that's been coming up a lot in the podcast is the idea of if you've wanted to do something like creative with your life, that often it's good to have had at least one real job first so you can see i don't want to do that because mm. a lot of pursuing a creative endeavor like a lot of going through the hard time is remembering oh no 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 otherwise i'd have to be going into an office and you know thinking that the guy with the, the id tag on his waist was cool like, that, that was think, very motivating in yeah. the early years the thought that I, I may have to crawl back to my old job if it didn't work out with writing but what i did is i every lunch break i protected my lunch breaks um, rigorously, I instead of going and eating with uh, my peers in the cafeteria or whatever, I would jump in my um, crappy old Toyota Corolla that I eventually sold for two hundred and fifty dollars, <laughs> and um, go down to a local park and with a laptop that I borrowed from the company and and write this novel syrup. And it um, it took a year and a half maybe of lunch times writing a few hundred words every day, uh, but that felt really important to me. This this thing that I was building in the car. How did you have that determination though? Like I know that yes, it's a dream and I know that you have like yes, this feels important to me. But still, you're working a job. Like you know, working a job is hard, particularly at the level of that job you're at. Like you know, you're a person who has to go in and do a good job and work hard and and like the temptation would be at lunchtime, I don't want to have to go and like work more. Oh, it just it just felt like the time that I was spending at my job selling computer systems, although I did try to do a good job, it just felt like a waste of time to me. Right. I knew that, like I had a quota, I had to sell three point something million dollars worth of computer systems each year. And all the people in the sales team were like this. Some of them had seven, eight million dollar quotas. And everybody lived and died by these quotas. This is how sales reps work. They, they get paid on commission. Once they make their quota, they get these uh, bonus multipliers, uh, whatever it is. So uh, it's massive. And you get the numbers posted up on the cubicle all the time to see who's in front, who's behind, who right. hasn't sold anything that all that month. Uh, and then you get to June 30 and it ticks over to July 1 and all the numbers go back to zero and you start again. Now, this just seemed terrifying right. to me that you'd be you'd go through this cycle over and over and and really be doing nothing. Yeah. Whereas me going off in the car and, and writing a few hundred words actually built a bit of a novel that day. And if I went home and I had written a few hundred words, it just felt like the most important thing I'd done that day. And I felt that was that was what I was there to do. Yep. So the guys I worked with would have thought the opposite, that it was a waste of time to go and, and work in your car. But it just didn't feel that way to me. Did you keep it a secret? At this point in your life, were you, who, who knew that you were writing a novel? No one. No, no, I didn't. I didn't tell anyone that. that I would have been embarrassed to say right. that. I guess, you know, thinking that 
I don't know. You know, it's a private thing to, to work on a piece of art before it's ready. I'll never like to share something I'm working on beforehand. But um, no, I, I didn't tell anyone I was doing it and that I hope to one day leave Hewlett Packard and go write novels full time. But um, yeah, no, I, I just didn't do it. Okay. So you, you write this novel in your lunch hour for mm-hmm. a year and a half? Yeah, yeah, that's right. About a year and a half. And then I started sending out... Actually, I typed into AltaVista, which was the search engine you used in 1995 (laughs) or whenever it was. Uh, How do you get a novel published? And I found all these American websites because the internet was almost entirely American back then. And what they said is that you need to write a query letter to agents. So a query letter is is a one-page letter that summarizes who you are, uh, what your book's about, uh, and why it's worth reading, um, leaving enough space in the margins for them to write, sorry, not for us, and send it back to you right. in a stamped, self-addressed envelope. So, <laughs> um, I, I thought, well, okay. Um, and I, um, I thought I might as well do that at the same time as approaching Australian publishers. So uh, this process that worked for America, I would follow. And in Australia, as far as I could pick up, you just, you just sent letters to publishers directly. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't work that way anymore, but but back in the late 90s, they did actually accept submissions direct from the public. So so I started writing to agents and I also started writing to Australian publishers uh, with this novel. Uh, and the Australian publishers either didn't reply or they said no thanks based on the query letter. Or in um, the case of Penguin, they um, they liked the query letter and they asked to see some sample chapters and then the, I sent in three chapters, and then they asked to see the whole book. Um, but it was a strange kind of acceptance. I, I remember them saying, you know, it's, it's interesting. I don't think it will work for a whole novel, but, you know, what the hell, send, send the chapters in. So, so okay, I did that. But, but months and months went by in this process. It took like three months to get the initial reply, and then it took another six months for them to actually consider the um, – the sample chapters, uh, and in the meantime, I had sent dozens and dozens of letters off to to the United States. And then one day, I got a phone call. Um, I had actually quit my day job at this point because I had just become convinced it was going to work out. I was right. Gonna... So you quit your day job before, like you had sold your book. I did. Like yeah. I mean, this is not a spoiler. You know, like I'm I'm not having you on <laughs> to bring up the worst incident in your entire life. Please tell us about how you wrote that book in lunchtime in your car and it never got published. That's right. Yeah, the one I sold for $250 to buy food because yeah. I was living on the street. Yeah, he actually sold it for the same amount as your car. <laughs> yes. Um no, I so but you quit your job before that. I say I don't I don't remember that. I didn't know that that had happened. I thought it must have been the other way around. No, but you were determined by the time you'd finished the book and by the time, what, were you determined that book was going to sell or you were just determined, you know what, I want to be a writer. Now that I've written a book, I know that I can write a book and I'm going to be a writer regardless. Yeah, a bit of both. I was very confident about the book. I was too confident really. Like, I mean, how, out, how, but how were you confident though? Because You like, feel arrogance, I think. Right, because there's, like getting a book published is incredibly difficult. Mm, like yeah. incredibly difficult. Yeah. It is mostly rejection. Yeah, but that's the thing. You know, if, if any reasonable person had looked at my situation back then mm. um, and I had said, you know, I've written this book um, and I've just started sending it out and I think it could, be, it could be published and I could become a full-time writer, any reasonable person would say, look, that's not really very realistic. You right. should probably not do that and, and not quit your job and, and maybe take a course in creative writing, right. which I'd never done and, yeah. and something like that. But 
and yeah, that's the right advice, but but it doesn't always work out that way. Sometimes people can break through, um, which is why when someone comes to me and wants advice on their ridiculous writing dream, um, I'll always encourage them because because yeah, who knows? Who knows? It can work, right? Um, and yeah, what happened is my wife my wife's family had moved to Perth, uh, and she wanted to be with them, and I was looking for a, a reason to quit my job and write full time. So we made this deal where uh, I would um, write part-time and work part-time for two years and I had two years to get my income back up to what it had been at Hewlett-Packard level and if I could do that then I was allowed to keep writing for as as long as that happened. See that's interesting as well because like you know you talk about the idea of having a relationship and again this goes back to the things of like you know you were pursuing one dream but Jen wanted to you know do something else and you guys have to compromise and when you come to and you I imagine if you are going to say to your partner the person that you're going to be with and like you know you're going to support each other that I want to be a writer that you have to have some like you have to have a talk about that right like it isn't oh, just yeah, the like yeah. you know I want to be a writer cool high five let's go on with our lives like it's got to be a decision you both come to right yeah yeah that's right and although I say it was a deal it was it was one we both arrived at and I I personally wanted to have something like that I didn't want to quit my job and try to be a writer for five years and make no money and then yep. just sort of continue struggling um, I, I wanted to have some sort of bar to clear I guess so so that was the the bar that we set um and luckily I was paid extremely poorly at Hewlett Packard so it wasn't right. all that much yeah. to get over yeah luckily you didn't do too good a job while yeah, you were there yeah if you'd really right. gone for a big quota and some bonuses yeah. you would have really screwed yourself with the writing <laughs> exactly yeah so I um I got a phone call one day we we're in Perth and um there's this guy on the other end of the line who says Hey, Max, uh, I'm Todd Keithley. I I love your book. I want to represent you. And so this is this guy who I'd queried via mail and he had read the chapters and and wanted to represent me overseas. Now, as it turned out, um, he did this amazing job of marketing the book and he got um, all the major publishers interested in it. Um, He he managed to convince them that there was this straight line from – Bridget Jones's Diary by Helen Fielding through um, that Nick Hornby book. What was it? Uh, High, High Fidelity. Fidelity. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, to Syrup by Max Barry. This was going to be the next like, sort of breakout, right. indie-ish sort of um, humorous book. And it, uh, it didn't work out that way as it turned out. But at the time, publishers were super interested in calling me up and um, schmoozing me. Now, I've discovered it's never as good as that first time when you're right. an unknown writer with a book that multiple publishers want because you could be anything as far as they know. Oh, mate, like the first time you go to LA and have a meeting at a big talent agency because like anyone could be the next Letterman. Anyone right. could be the next, you know, Russell Brown or whatever. So that meeting is the best meeting you will ever have. <laughs> yes. After a while, they say what you are. They're like, oh, yeah, we can probably find something for you, but you're not that special. Right, yeah. Right. It was very much like that, yeah. which was wonderful, right? It was like the whole dream coming true uh-huh. and I having these phone calls at three in the morning Perth time with editors in New York and so explain to me what the feeling is like at that time it, it does it feel unreal or do you are you feeling like no 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 this is what I've been working towards and now it's finally happening or is it like explain what's going through your mind back then oh uh, yeah no it was amazing I'd, I'd wanted that all my life and although I'd been unreasonably arrogant about my chances of getting it uh, I I knew it was special I knew it was was a major thing to happen and um, I had been, you know, had stories rejected from everywhere I'd submitted them and I'd had the novel rejected from a bunch of places. So, so yeah, I, I certainly knew that, you know, I was, I was realistic and, and optimistic at the same time. So, yeah. 
so yeah it was it was absolutely amazing it was it was literally the dream coming true and i um i ended up they had an, an auction these publishers sort of faxed in offers and and it went back and forth and and the book got sold for an unreasonable amount of money which felt like winning the the lottery at the time and and uh yeah i had i had a world rights deal for this novel that um that i now i know the story the part of the story that i haven't really talked about much which is when you tell it is a big part is me getting like kicked out the door from all these australian publishers who who would not have a bar of me and and I was forced to go overseas and find a publisher there. And Look, I may have ramped that up a little bit, but I think it makes a good story, right? It's the underdog against the world. Yeah, well, look, there is an element to it. And, and I had this kind of long, ongoing feud with the head of Penguin, which was like this one-sided feud. I don't know. This is It's like a, every time I spoke to the guy, I felt like I had really annoyed him by doing something in the past. And because I had like sold the book overseas that yep. that was some sort of massive slight but but you know I, he never came out and said that and i started to wonder if i was imagining it but he was always so hostile to me so right. so i don't know what happened anyway it was um yeah it was it was this weird roundabout way of going getting published where i i tried with some you know limited efforts in australia and it didn't move quickly enough for me basically and so i thought i had nothing to lose by trying overseas as well and and somehow that worked which has been amazing because um it's it's almost impossible to support yourself as a full-time novelist in australia you have to be one of the top you know 10 people to do that and um and I'm not going to be the top 10 best-selling author in Australia. So what America has done for me is provided that market where I can be mildly successful and actually write full-time. So uh, what happens after that? So you, you sell your first book and then it, from then on, are you just like, well, okay, I'm going to be a writer now? Like is that the, the decision you make? Is selling the first book enough yeah. that you go, this is what I'm doing now? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I, I mean, it was it was enough money to support us for for years, so uh, there wasn't the financial pressure, and it was what I'd always wanted to do. So yeah, I became a full time writer pretty much on the spot. Um, I was teaching part time at Curtin University, teaching marketing to impressionable students, uh, but I um, I stopped doing that at the end of the year, and have basically written full time ever since. So it's it's like fourteen, fifteen years now, which is a bit scary. But- and how many books is it now? Because Lexicon was your most recent book. Yep, that's the fifth the fifth novel. So it's um it's a book every couple of years. Basically what I do is I write a lot of books and most of them are unpublishable and then I just the ones that are not end up being published. Is but that really written, is yeah, that really I've true? 11, 11 novels and had 5 published so far. Wow. And so how many of them got to like how many of them are unpublishable because you were like they you never even showed them to a publisher or do you, or, yeah. or do they all get shown and like No, no. Some of them I showed to the publisher and they had to gently tell me, "Yeah, I don't think this is the the right book for you at this moment." Mm-hmm. And some of them I realized before it even got that far when I you know, we talked about the delusion you go through when you're creating a piece of, of art. And when um, when I showed it to some friends and they said, yeah, yeah, and, you know, the delusion comes crumbling down. Right. And you look at it through fresh eyes and you realize, no, no, that's not very good at all. So how much work would you – because I think this is will be fascinating to people as well. Because, again, like 
we only ever really see the successes. Mm, you know, we yeah. see the book that gets published. Yeah. And and people, when they sit down to write a book, particularly, I think, for the first time, or even like any other project, is that almost that thing of like going, well, I just have to, you know, get it right the first time. Yes. But you're not, with like, what you do, you're like talking about the idea of getting the first draft down, you know, for a start, so you can start to work on it, just like get that down. But also, you're talking about the idea of putting major work into a project that will never see mm. the light of day. Like some people would just, they couldn't do that. They couldn't put that much work into something that wouldn't be. Well, I, I couldn't do it if I knew in advance that it right. was never going to work out. I mean, you tell yourself it's a learning experience and it's all for the best. But no, it's horrible if you've worked on a book for a year and then you realize no. And, and there's some books I've worked on for more than that long and I still haven't given up that one day right. they'll be published. Yeah, but, or that you'll crack the the idea, just the thing or the whatever that makes it, yeah, work yeah, that's or right. Sing or, that's right. Yeah, yeah. but um, no, it's um, it's it's really important to believe that the book you're working on is brilliant, mm-hmm. um, and then and then you need to, as I mentioned before, you need to turn it from something that you've really personally enjoyed into a story that works in someone else's head, and at that point, uh, you've got to look at it a lot more critically and. Yeah, sometimes it's just not going to work like you thought. I imagine I'm probably going to ask you a couple of questions that people ask you all the time, but I'm fascinated by these things. I'd like to know what your process is. Like, um, do you have a regular sort of like, you know, writing schedule that you stick to? I'd love to know, like, you know, how an idea formulates. Like, do you start with characters? Do you start with something that you really want to say? I'd love to know how much of your life you think you should be working and how much should be like going out into the world and doing things so that you have external, you know, stimuli to be able to, Mm. you know, fuel the things you're talking about. I mean, I know that's a lot of questions, but I think they're all kind of in the same area. But, uh, you know, you were talking about when you're at Hewlett Packard, Mm. like, you know, you're working in this environment, you studied marketing, suddenly you're working in this area and you write your first book, Syrup, which you can see, you know, the office environment, the marketing, all those things are there in the Mm. book. But you spend the rest of your life as like a professional author, like, you know, sitting at home typing in front of a computer or whatever. Like, where do you get your stimuli from? Where do you Mm. get your stories from? You know, where do you learn about life and take all those things in? Mm. Yeah, look, that's a really good question. Um, And it's something that I've wondered about being a full-time writer because, yeah, I'm not not going out and – living the the parts of life that other people are i'm it's incredibly isolating when you're just writing books um and the other part which is programming again sort of by yourself in the study um so so yeah there's um this line of thought that you should go out and and live amazing experiences and then write about them and yeah maybe that works but um but it's it's not something that I've done and it's not something I'm especially interested in doing mm-hmm. either. It's you know maybe maybe if I had done that I would have stumbled across some amazing idea for a novel and and that would have that would have triggered the whole thing. But look, it's it just hasn't been that way for me um and I'm I'm not really interested in changing it. Yeah. So uh, look But that's me- I mean but that idea alone is interesting because I think that there's no right or wrong way on on any of these things because you've got to find what works for you. Like sometimes, you know, part of the reason that I like being a comedian is that I don't have to get up early in the morning and I can wear my tracksuit pants most of the day. Like that right. is also part of the reason. Like, you know, there's yeah. a lot of more, you know, uh, idealistic and artistic reasons I do my job. But part of it is, you know, that mm. in the middle of the day I can be talking to my friend in my tracksuit pants, you know. Yeah. And, and for me, part of the job, part of the amazing part of my job is that I'm in the same house as my wife and my two daughters right. now and we have lunch together and I can hear them in the house. I mean, that's... 
that's fantastic. I would hate to lose that. Yeah. But no, I mean, the thing about going into the world is is really it's a practical thing. It's like I'm I'm really busy. It feels like, and I don't know when the hell I would have time to go out and yep. you know work. Um, some other job for the experience. So it's, but, okay, but so I do feel you, that's damaging. That it's, yeah. it's, it would have been better to experience, you know, the more of of the world where I where I've sort of been detached from it. And I think that's an issue for for probably most novelists that when they start doing it full time, you end up almost writing about writing if you fall down too much down that path because that's what your experience is. So it's it's useful being detached from the world. And that's can- the columnist equivalent of, I remember when I used to write the weekly column for the newspaper here and I did it for six years and eventually you would run out of ideas and I was talking to someone um, uh, about like, you know, I couldn't think of an idea for the column and it was another columnist and they said, have you done the one about, have you done the column about how you can't think of anything for the column yet? Right. And I was like, oh, is that a thing? I was like, because <laughs> yeah. I think that's what I'm going to do this one <laughs> right yeah. yeah i have a blog and the same sort of thing starts to happen the blog about yeah so it's um yeah look i don't know anyway the, the process for me is at the moment is getting up early um around about five o'clock um if i can be if i can stand doing that um and having the coffee and going straight to work and and writing before anyone else is up and how long will you write for and what does writing mean in that sense like is that literally you like sit you know sitting do you write on a computer i assume i do yeah, yeah. yeah. so um is that literally you like sitting there and writing when you say writing is it writing and editing how does that process work for you yeah oh look there's there's nothing really set there yeah. it's and what I found is by the time I get to the end of a novel, by which I mean I've, I'm on draft seven or whatever, and it's gone back and forth between me and the publisher, I have figured out everything I need to know about how to write that novel. Right. But I haven't figured out anything new about how to write because the next book I, I start, uh-huh. and I'm usually full of confidence because I'm like, yeah, I've just completely nailed right. this previous book. I've, I've learned all these things. It's been a great experience. And it's back to square one. Right. It really Because those lessons don't necessarily apply to the next one because yeah. it's a specific... Yeah, yeah, that's right. And and another thing I find is that if I'm working on a book, I start to see everything through the prism of that book. So if I'm writing lexicon, I'm, I'm looking at everything in terms of how people get persuaded and how people can discover the truth about one another, how we hide parts of ourselves and... Everything I see suddenly seems relevant to that concept. Right. But then I move on to something else and now it's it's more um, I'm starting to see everything in terms of where we are as a species and what we leave behind. You know, it's and everything seems relevant. So it's um, it's completely different. Each book is its own world and it poses its own questions and, and so um, it, both in terms of theme and both in terms of, of how to write it because you've got to discover this whole world from the beginning. So, yeah, my process is really just dicking around on the computer until things start to make sense. Yeah. And I've got a million theories about what makes a good book and you need to start with a situation rather than ideas and, and all of these little things that I can go on about forever. But but fundamentally, none of that helps me write a new book. And I right. don't think it helps anyone write a book. No one sits down with their list of how to write 10 guidelines from Kurt Vonnegut or whoever and says, okay, step one, all right, let me just add step two here. <laughs> that, that's not how it works. You right. just write some stuff until the words tickle you and then you keep going. Uh, so, but you have a, like a steadfast sort of like, I'm going like, to try to get up at five and I'm going to say write till midday or something. How long would you write for? Is that uh, too well, long? At the or moment, that- yeah, no, that's way too long. Yeah. I, I would write um, until I start to feel really dizzy because I've had coffee and no food and it's about nine o'clock, okay. 10 o'clock. Mm-hmm. And then I'll go and, downstairs. And when you're writing, sorry, I know these are all very technical questions, but I love to hear what people are doing. 
Uh, do you have any music on? Do you have headphones on? Are you listening to something else? Are you watching something else? Or do you need to be solely concentrating on the thing that you, you know, like... Mm. Usually I'm listening to music, um, um, dubstep or high energy sort of low vocal music. I don't like oh, people yeah? talking yep. at me, but, uh-huh. but the... Um, but loud music that feel, makes me feel energized, I feel, just helps sort of kick me into the world. Yep. And then I'm somehow able to scream out, screen out the fact that there's all this noise in my ears for the rest of it. So yep. that works for me. Um, sometimes I'll, I'll write in silence, but not very often. And uh, it just – I try not to push it too. I did this thing where I start – when I first started writing full-time and I quit Hewlett-Packard and I said, all right, this is, this is my job now, so I'm going to treat it like a job. Right. And I think I even contemplated getting dressed in a suit for right. my first uh-huh. week or so. Yep. i sitting down at the computer and, all right, nine to five, this right. is how I go. And I set myself a word target, 2,000 words every day that I was going to write. And I was determined to hit that because I was taking it seriously. And I, I actually managed to do it almost every day um, for about three months. Uh, at the end of that, I had a novel. I had maybe about 80% of a novel, um, probably 60,000, 70,000 words, which is a lot of words, right? Mm. And they were terrible. It was the, right. the crappiest novel I've ever written in my life. And I learned that, okay, you can force yourself to write words, but you can't force yourself to write good words. Yeah. So all of my technique these days is about putting myself in a place where I'm excited about what I'm doing and I'm feeling happy about it. And usually that means if I start to flag, then stop right there. Stop, right. Just leave it there uh, and come back to it when I've had a bit of time for it to percolate in my head and, and usually delete the last couple of sentences and, and go on from there. But it's, yeah, look, it's, it's really organic and some days it works and some days it doesn't. And if it doesn't, I try not to beat myself up about it. Uh, although that's hard if there's a lot of days in a row where, where it doesn't work. And, and I just really figure it out as I go along. It's, it's a really personal thing, Will, because it's, it's you and the work and the only person who can tell you whether it's working is you. You can't write the book for anyone else at that stage and you can't think about how other people are going to react to it. It's, it's just you and the story. How have you stayed with that being your main motivation? Because I imagine over the journey there's been times where somebody has said to you, you know, if you wrote a book a bit more like this or if you just tweak this a bit more like this, maybe we could, you know, it could have a broader appeal or like a different appeal. Like surely there's been that pressure at some stage. I haven't Maybe really even from that. yourself. I've, no? I've, it's almost been the opposite. I've tended to, to look to the publisher who's just bought this, this book from me and yeah. they're about to publish it and say, what else? What else do you want to see? Oh, yeah, from right. Is there okay. some sort of idea yeah. of what you might like to see next? Because I've written books about marketing and science fiction books and, and some of the unpublished books. One of them was this comedy set in um, the Hundred Years' War between England and France. Right. And, you know, science fiction with spaceships and aliens. And I've, I've been all over the place. And uh, that's not really what you want to do uh, if you want to try to carve no. out a career as a novelist. You want to stay in a reasonable A certain area. genre. Like, yeah. I mean, a certain sort of, like, he writes this sort of book. Although yes. I think that you write Max Bar- – I mean, all, all your books, I would say, and this is it, something that I – oh, well, let's talk about this, whether it's conscious or whether it's just because it's who you are and in your stories. But I was having a conversation about your books with someone the other day and we were talking about this idea of like, uh, you know, what, what style of comedy, you know, did, did you, you – well, what, no, what style of books did you write? And I said, well, you know, they're, like, they're, they're normally satirical. Like I normally feel like there's like a level of satire, you know, involved in whatever the story is. Um, 
But I said that most of them are kind of love stories. Mm. Like nearly, I mean, I, I, I wanted to say everyone, but I couldn't know if that's 100% sure. But most of them seem to have like a, a pretty simple like love yeah. story at the heart of it. You yeah. know, and then it's dressed up around, you know, whatever world they happen to be in, whether it's the world of marketing or the world of the robots or the world yeah. of the what, whatever else. Yeah. Now, how much of that, I am, is that accurate of me to say? And B, how much of that is of design or how much of that is just that that is such an important thing to you and what your life is that it comes through as a theme constantly in your work yeah no that's it it's i never have an idea for a love story per se but um the most interesting part of any story for me is usually is is the love story and that that does come down to the fact that i think that it's the most important thing we can do in our lives um i've i've written this novel machine man which is about this guy who um, drops off parts of his own body and rebuilds himself, and it's this, it's this story about an engineer who sees things extremely logically, uh, and that we are all really just wet machines walking around as vessels for our minds, and um, he doesn't see any particular difference between machinery and, and people, and and this is a view that that I kind of agree with to a large degree. Um, I. I've become quite a technical person. Um, mm-hmm. I have this programming that I do on the side and you write code and and it's um, it makes you see everything in terms of code and machines that, that surely we can debug our own bodies somehow and, and fix things. And But um, uh, and in fact, I had, I had these chickens. I rented these chickens a couple of years ago. <laughs> Here we go. I, I didn't, I didn't buy chickens, but you could rent chickens. What do you, you mean? See, there's this place that, that rents chickens out. If you are the sort of person who wants to have a pet, right. chickens, but yeah. you're not sure if you're ready to right. commit, they will rent you the chickens. And then if you decide that, okay, you want to keep them, then you, then you can keep them. Right, but you Otherwise, can, but you can return them, them. Yeah, yeah, that's right, returnable chickens. Right. Now, the genius wow. of renting chickens is that it's impossible to say no to. Like when your daughter comes to you and right. says, can we rent some chickens? You can't say, well, no, there's, we can't keep chickens here. There's not enough room. They won't be happy because if they're not, they just go back. Right. So, so they came to me with the chickens idea, um, my wife and my daughters. And um, so we rented the chickens. And, um, and I lost faith in, in the magic of life by watching these chickens because I became convinced that I could write code that would completely accurately simulate everything these chickens did. Uh-huh. So instead of discovering that these animals had this kind of you know, inner spirit to them or a soul or anything like this, um, I just started to see them as like these little walking automatons going around the backyard. Anyway, um, so the question is whether people are like this as well, right? right? Whether people can be, uh, with some degree of, of um, enormous computing power, be, be simulated completely accurately. Whether we are whether we are just the sum of our parts or whether there is there's something else in there. And look, I, I tend to be I tend to be a bit of a determinist and I tend to feel that um, as magical as people are, we are almost entirely or completely machines right. to, to a large degree. So um, so I do believe that. But then I also believe that that love and the way that people two people can connect with one another is is the most important thing that we can do. So it's it's always a love story for me, and it doesn't start that way. But but there's always a love story at the core of it that is the most interesting thing about it. Uh, so it, that brings us back to where we started, which was this idea of your you know these these two different this creative side of you and this very sort of you know practical the the machines the robots the technology side of you and how they sit side by side but 
I, I find that very interesting what you said then, because where do you think, like if we, if we explore that theme a little bit, bit more broadly, like, you know, we, worry, we talk a lot these days about the singularity and about the idea that we're loading a lot of our information into the machines. And it, yeah, is there going to be a point where like human beings as they exist right now don't exist in the way that they exist now? Um, where do you think like love, where, where does that come from? What is that? Like, I mean, oh, I because no it's been such a big thing in your life, like such mm. a determining factor in your life for someone who, you know, as you said, can look at a chicken and think I could write code to get do everything that chicken does. You're not saying what came first, the chicken or the egg. You're like, I can write code for chicken or an egg. I can sort this out. Then how do you explain love? I, look, surely no one wants to explain love. I mean, if there was, if you could find some chemical reaction and you could point to a part of the brain and say, all right, this is exactly what's happening when someone's falling in love. Um, please don't show me that. Right. I, that's the last thing I want to discover. I, I'm interested in finding out the truth about the universe. But, but if we found that, um, you know, I'm prepared to accept that that's there, but, but I, I don't want to see it. Yeah. I really don't because it would it would reduce so much of what I consider to be critically important about the world down to, to something so mundane. Okay. So what, more broadly then, like what about, what do you believe? Like what do you have a sense of like, you know, uh, uh, you know, a faith or a greater sense of the universe or do you just genuinely believe that like our life is essentially what we you know make it in the moments that we have having our life? Do you have a broader sense of what we're meant to be doing? Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't believe in a God. I'm, I'm not a, a spiritual person really to any degree. Uh, I, I believe that the universe is, is amazing and beautiful due to its, its physical nature. It's, um, it's an extraordinary place in which we live. Uh, I believe that we um, – you talk about finding meaning for yourself in your life, and, and I completely believe in that, and we all, we all do that in different ways. But um, for me, fundamentally, um, the, the most magical thing in the universe is the way that, that two, two people can, can come together. Um, and it's, it's my, my wife and I, for me, and my daughters are, are just amazing people as well. And, so, and the thing about kids is they connect you to the entire species because you, you live in your life as, as this person who is mostly interested in, in yourself. Uh, and then you have children and... You you see yourself in them, and you see, oh wow, I I was this person, and like I wonder now, I'm a, a 41 year old, and I wonder how much in common I've got with the the 19 year old. I I don't know. I have right. I got more in common with that guy or with with another 41 year old at this point? Because right. I you know I know that my body is changing on me, and it's it's feeding these new chemicals and hormones into my brain, and it's making me think differently. It's um it's making me less passionate about things now than I was twenty years ago, and it's uh, forty especially as like forty is the top of the hill in the sense that it's what you've been looking forward to up until you hit it, and then after forty it's like oh it's pretty much all downhill right. from here. So you're looking down the other side of the hill. So it's um it's the time where you start thinking about I guess larger questions of of what you leave behind mm-hmm. and and yeah as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I would like to have, have left a positive impact on the world. I would like to have, have told stories that, that made people think in different ways, uh, not to change their thinking, but just to 
responds. Like I'll tell you about, I got this letter once. This is the best thing that's ever happened to me. One of the best things. Uh, I got this letter from this um, 14-year-old um, who was writing to me about Jennifer Guffman. And he, he said, uh, Max, this is the best book I've ever read. And he went on for a little bit about how much he loved it. And now this kid has, has clearly not read an enormous number of books right. in his life. Yeah. But, but nobody is ever going to be more excited about something I've done than this kid. And I thought, well, well that's, that's really it. It's, I've done about as much as you can do right. with this one kid. And if it happens another 100 times or 100,000 times, whatever, it's, it's going to be a duplication of, of this experience right here. So it's, um, it's, it's an amazing thing being able to, to give a story to someone else and, and let them make it into their own story. I feel that's important. And I'm proud of doing that. Uh, I'm proud of of raising my daughters and helping them to be good people, to to both survive in the world and um, to benefit the world. How do you do that? Like on a, pra- I mean, I know it's a myriad of things, but you say that in a way that, like, I'm, you know, that you've thought about that, and, and it's important to you. And I imagine that you and Jen like discuss how you want to raise your kids and like, mm. but. On a practical sense, what does what what does that mean? Yeah, well, it's a learning experience too for parents. You have to figure out th- these things as you go along, and and a lot of it is about improving yourself too, because you realise that you're this role model, and what you do is teaching how your children to act. So, right. uh, I mean, becoming a parent, the first thing that happens to you when you become a parent is is you get crapped on by this child, and you get woken up, and and you are told as rudely as possible that the world is not about you anymore right. you are now a slave to this this new creature yeah. in your life and you spend the rest of it being reminded of that fact that it's not just about you and that you have to keep um improving to to um to help these children become good people so yeah there, there are a myriad of ways in which you have to do that and i only know a fraction of them but uh but i'm trying the best i can to to be aware of of how they're changing and how what I'm doing and and we're doing is is forming their opinions, and yeah, you just just figure it out as you go along. Max, it's been an absolute pleasure. I think that's as nice a note as any to finish on. Yes, that that's nice, good, beautiful. Now, uh, if people want to find you uh, online, because that's the best place. Obviously, they, I want people to go and read your books. But um, if they want to find you online, where, where do they find you? Maxbarry.com. Uh, and uh, nation states. Tell me, because like, I don't, I've never quite known what's going on with nation states. Explain to me what it is, how that works. Can people get involved in it? Is that what can people do? Or is oh, it yeah. Already- okay. So nation states is this thing. What happened? Syrup came out uh, yeah. and my first novel was published. And it's um, it sold very poorly compared to the um, heightened expectations that everyone had beforehand. Um, just because I think it, although it was popular with the people who read it, it's not a really widely accessible story. It's a story about a, a guy who wants to succeed in marketing. And yep. it's just, I don't think that many people who want to read about that. You know what though? Like I reckon possibly that was a book that maybe was 10 or 15 years before it's time now. Because because marketing and advertising is so like it's such a part of people's lives now. Even in a way, it wasn't back when you wrote Syrup, which is what oh how long ago is that now? Is it nearly twenty years ago uh, now? Getting close to it, right? So 
like now, nowadays, you know, every rapper, you know, tweets and brags about the clothes they wear or everyone's got a soft drink brand and everyone's got – I think that that world that you kind of described in that book, I think people now, nowadays – You know the problem though is that all these things in the novel that I kind of described right. as outrageous yeah, are now all just became true. So yeah, that's right. It's not very shocking anymore. It's, <laughs> it's not even over the top. Yeah, it's like those people actually read the book and went, these are good ideas. Yeah. Write this down. That's right. (laughs) Yeah, so look, um, the book hadn't sold all that well. Um, I'd written this this other novel, Jennifer Government, and I had realized that you couldn't rely on publishers to just elevate you to the bestseller lists um, and do a heap of promotion. You had to promote yourself. You really had to make an effort as an author. Yeah, that's interesting because I think a lot of people in the creative process, and it happens a lot in my industry as well, they kind of think, you know, I'll get a manager, for example, mm. and then I'll be sweet. I'll just kick back and I'll tell my jokes. Like, no, that's not how it works. Like, you know, I still feel like every day I have to get on Twitter and write some jokes and, you know, make sure people know about the podcast or they know that yep. the shows are on. Mm. I have to be like, you know, putting out the podcast so that people are like, oh, you know, okay, you're around and let people know that the shows are on and all that sort of stuff. Like it never, yeah. it never stops. But as an author, you know, I mean, again, you've, like it's You've even got to do it, yeah. Away. And it, that's right. It's so alien as an author too because you have this time where you're working on the book where mm. it's just you and the keyboard and then you are expected to go out and, and talk to people and promote and perform and right. it's, it's completely different. Like right now I'm out of sync. Like doing this interview is, is strange for me because I'm not in a promotional phase. So yeah. I, don't, I don't talk to other human beings right now and I've right. kind of forgotten all of the, the social things you do when you talk to someone. So but interesting after, though. But then but when the book comes out, you suddenly… Com- yeah, give me a couple of weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Be, you'll have I'll a bunch of great anecdotes. That's right. Yeah, I've like, yeah, this one. This is a great story. Don't worry. Yeah. I've added some to this one as well. Right, right. That's right. Yeah. They, they all expand a little bit. What so, about the life? Oh, sorry, we'll get back to Nations Days, but the, I, I love, this is something I do all the time, by the way. I start to wrap up and then we never yeah, wrap up. But right. um, uh, the, the live performance aspect, because what's something that we didn't touch on was back at high school, uh, the two of us, like did some live performing together. Uh-huh. Like we played yeah. theater sports together, we and we like did some like house like play stuff, and like you know just you know. And you were a very very talented and very funny performer. Oh, like thank you, Will. You know, like but it's true, right? And uh, but you did you enjoy it back at high school? You seemed that you always enjoyed. Oh yeah, it. no, I was I was a, a performer in high yeah. school. Um, and and so there is an aspect of what you do still that is performing, right? You get to go out and do the readings, and do, yeah. do, do you enjoy that side of it still? Yeah, I do, um, but it's it is strange for an author to to perform. Um, I mean, it's been great for me because I had that interest in acting and 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 comedy and doing that sort of stuff um, fairly young, and I've never really gone on with that. I haven't done any performance apart from book readings um, since high school. But even that level of experience has elevated me quite high for an author. Right. So when I do a book reading for an author, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty professional. You kill him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. I, I'm terrible compared to an actual performer, but yeah. So it's been useful. So, but yeah, it's it's a real dual world and and one that you never really get used to. I think. I think that that aspect of it is really interesting, though, because I always think this with comedy is like uh, people say, "Oh, you know, what's your year like?" But my year's very different. Like, you know, this period of time I'm in now is like, I mean, I've done 45 shows in 46 days. I'm bang in the middle of performance mode for the show. So the podcast goes off the boil a little bit. Like, you know, I try to bank some before that because that's the world that I'm in. Um, I'm doing a lot of publicity, so I've got to be in radio mode. I've got to be in like being able to plug the show, having good anecdotes, you know, that sort of mode. And then performance mode. 
But the two months, three months before this, I was gigging bits, but I was writing lots. You know, and then there'll be a part of the year after this where I don't have to work mm-hmm. on this show as much because the show is up and running and it's kind of flying and most of yeah. the work that I'm doing it on in stage. So then I start to work on other aspects of what I do again. So it's never quite the same job. It, yeah, I don't think you really have a downtime though. I mean, certainly not compared to what I do. Like your writing time, you would never be far away from performing like you'd always be talking to someone um doing a a gig somewhere or or talking on the radio or something or a podcast where you know you don't have the period of a couple of months going by where it's just you and the writing do you no i don't and i i I often wonder whether it would be something that would be beneficial to me no no it wouldn't (laughs) no no? as a performer no no it wouldn't if you're writing a novel it might be no but i just i mean there is part of me that kind of thinks just like even one month like just take a month out of everything and just yep. go and see what happens in my head if there's no external stimuli. Could like, you do that though? Would you start to feel like people are introverts or extroverts? And right. Apparently the, the main difference is not that you can't perform or you can't be alone, but that one of them saps your energy and the other one gives you energy. So for me, I, I can go out and do a book tour and I can perform, but it's exhausting for right. me and I just need to be alone for a while at the end of it. Whereas I suspect, you can tell me if it's true, for you, the energizing part is where you're performing and where I, you're interested. I mean, that, no, you're absolutely right about that. Like, I, I, I've been feeling shitty for two weeks. Like, you know, I, I got a bit of a festival flu and because I've, I, I, I've been so busy, it's just been hard to shake. But every show... You get out on stage, bang. Like the energy, the fun, you know, like, I mean, the other night on Tuesday night, I was feeling croaky and it, the show went 86 minutes, like uh-huh. without me thinking about it, you know, which is, that's just a sign I'm having a good time because it's a 70 minute show, really. Not that I've ever done it in 70 minutes, but it's meant to be a 70 minute show. Um, so, I, no, I do understand that, but I don't, I don't feel like I, I feel like I get so much of it that I don't. Like if I had a period of time, I don't think I'd be one of those people that like if I went away for a month to somewhere there was no phones and no video and no one knew who I was that I would be go crazy three weeks in or something. No. Okay. I don't feel like that. I feel like I have enough of all this in the rest mm. of – like if I thought that that was what it was going to be forever, yeah. then yes. Yeah, no, but that's because okay. I know that like, you know, in a couple of months I can go back and mm. yeah, no, I yeah. don't I don't feel the need for it all the time anymore. In fact, if some, it's, sometimes I really crave – like the down time, the down period where I don't have to engage in Okay. It. Yeah, I would have thought it would be so difficult to go from one extreme to the other. From Like you're, when you're performing, you're performing to large crowds of people. You are, you are engaging with a ton of people, something that would leave me completely wrecked for, for weeks afterwards. And then to go from that to the isolation for, for a month or two. I mean, it's a big deal not to, not to speak to anyone outside of your immediate family for a month or two. Yeah, well, I mean, I haven't done it, so I'm not like I'm, I'm, I'm purely speculating on yeah. whether I could or couldn't do it, but the idea of but it idea is fascinating of it. Okay. to me. Right. So, you know, one day. Oh, maybe you should try it. One day when I find a spare month. I don't <laughs> yeah. have any at the moment. So let's get back to Nation States then. So, oh, yeah, okay. So you, you – Basically, so it's a game, right? It is a game. You get to. I was doing research for Jennifer Government about um, political economics, which sounds a lot more boring than it actually is, because it's about how the world should work uh, and how money can be used to to shape the world. Whether we have a system where um, you can do what you want with your money, whether we have a, a more egalitarian system, whatever. So anyway, I thought it would be fun to create a website where you get to make your own country and you get to set the laws and then the game sort of simulates how your country goes. 
and you get confronted with these these daily issues. So one issue might be that um, there are people dying in your nation because of um, the lack of available organs to transplant in to save their lives. So if you want, you can um, make it a law that when people die, their organs can be used to save other lives. Now, it's your choice as to whether that's the right thing to do or whether it's right to let people die with their own organs if they choose. And your country evolves on that basis. So my feeling was that I would, I would code this up. Um, I've been a hobbyist programmer since um, high school, I guess, um, for no particular reason, just because I, I always found that interesting. And um, I, would, I would code this up and it would take me about three months. Um, and if I could get a thousand people to play the game and then I would have ads for Jennifer Government on the site, then it would be a, a roughly right, worthwhile promotion of my time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. So anyway, uh, as it turned out, I vastly underestimated the number of people who thought it was pretty cool to run their own nation. And uh, it exploded. It became incredibly popular. Uh, I think the number of nations made to date is about three and a half million. Oh, my God. And um, it gets, yeah, it's played, it's played a lot. And amongst those, those players, you know, I'm the nation states guy. They are vaguely aware I might have written novels, but, but I'm, I'm the nation states right. guy. Right. So um, the, it's a wonderful site and it has a whole community that kind of grew up and created so much more to the game than, was, than I provided. I provided this framework and instead they, they came up with all these alliances and they're role-playing these international incidents on the, for, on the forums and um, it's, it's massive. And it's people who are interested in politics and so they have very interesting conversations, they discuss topical events, um, there's worlds and worlds to it. Um, but there are also some insane people who are drawn to the idea of, ah, uh, here's somewhere I can make the world in my own right. I can finally twisted vision. Yeah, that's right. Um, so much like real life. Yeah, much like the rest. This is good. It really is reflective of the of the nations. It is. Yeah. So yeah, what? So, so what sort? Of, what What have you learnt about people from that? Ah, uh, well, you know the thing about trolls on the internet, right? Which has become more of a big deal lately, but. Um, but it's only really hit the mainstream recently. And what what confronted me probably six, seven, eight years ago is that there are some people on the internet who will decide they don't like you for some reason uh, and will do their best to destroy your life. Like they will tweet things, they will make up false rumors about you and try to spread them around um, independent newspapers. I mean, I've had um, basically what happens is someone on the site will get disgruntled for some reason uh-huh. and, and they will um, try to get uh, – we'll ban them uh, and, and they'll try to get back in. And they'll say, all right, if you won't let me back in this site, I'm going to you know, take down Max Barry, the, uh-huh. the owner of this game, who you know, is a public figure who has um, books on sale at Amazon that people can post reviews on. So, you know, oh, there yeah, are few, right. Okay, there there's are ways, ways that they can yeah. – Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so they do that and um, – and I've had um, yeah all kinds of, of campaigns. And the first time it happens, it's incredibly confronting. Because right. someone is saying mean things about you on the internet. Right. And, and, and also someone true. that you don't know yeah, and they're making right. up things. You're like, why do you hate me and why are you making up things? Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, it's very personal and very unsettling. Now, I think with Twitter and, and more of us are sort of sharing our lives online, it's, it's become a bit more mainstream lately and, and people are sort of getting the idea that that this happens yeah. um, and maybe even it becomes less of a big deal or, or maybe that's just me getting used to it but but it was yeah it was shocking when it first happened i think from your point of view like i mean here's the thing that i would generally say about like internet trolls and that sort of like you know like i don't mind i think people get confused sometimes when i talk about like you know when you talk about this is like 
I have no problem with informed uh, like criticism. I don't think my work is beyond criticism. I'm very critical of it myself. That is my process. I'm increasingly critical of things. You know, there's reasons that there are routines that are not in this show that were there a month ago, even though they worked every night, because I decided they shouldn't right. be there, not because the audience didn't decide. And I've got friends and family and whatever whose criticism that I'm very open to and that I re- respect and admire. Um, so I'm not saying that I like, but you know, if someone's just genuinely trolling but i think we have a responsibility just not to care like i mean obviously mm. in like situations where they're going to go further than that you have to then care and deal with that situation but i think we have to be the big people and just go you know what who cares mm. it's just that's what the internet is and we're fine yeah well, where that's, that's what you learn you, there's, right. there's no point engaging with it you just no. have to yeah let it but roll for kids and stuff like it's a whole different issue like if it's like yeah. for bullying and all those yeah. sort of things then i think it is an issue like mm. the, most of the time they're just like you know people but it's it's funny what people can say about you online. That I got a tweet the other day from this girl, and she said, uh, um, like this was her tweet was something along the lines of, "So you just walked past a homeless guy in the city who was trying to yell out and say he was a big fan? Shame or something like that." And I was like, "Well, I I wouldn't have done that." Like you know, my right. first thing is like I know that that has either either if that has happened mm. i clearly haven't like you know seen or heard the right. person like i walk around with my headphones on uh-huh. and i've clearly just not seen somebody waving at me yeah. but we live in an age now where people will post something like that and then like post it up they're like i was like isn't your first instinct if because she said and you completely ignored him and i'm like i just said to her i said you use the words i completely ignored him isn't your first instinct that if i completely ignored somebody that I just didn't see them. Right. That's what completely ignoring somebody is. Like if the guy had waved at me and uh-huh. I turned around and given yeah. him the finger or something, <laughs> right. then sure, I'm a terrible person. But, mm. but there is that. So I mean, you you can think it means a lot, or you can just go, no, no, no. I yeah. know I know what I'm like, and I know that yeah. I'm not well, doing well, the well, wrong thing. What you realise yeah. is that there are there are idiots out there, yeah. basically. That there are always going to be people who. Um, who don't like what you're doing and who have some bizarre opinion and um, you figure out that you just have to ignore them after a while. So it's, yeah, it's... it's. I mean, that's the hardest thing, thing because... that's all you can do. Well, because, you know, every we all would love if everybody loved everything that we did, but it's just never going to happen. And in fact, I'm not even that sure that's... Weird. I'm not even sure that statement's right, by the way, because <laughs> that would mean a lot of people I hate would got joy out of something I created, <laughs> right. and I wouldn't be comfortable with that. Yeah. Most of the time, the person who's like, I hate you, I look at any of their other opinions, I'm like, yeah, good, because I'm not really sure I want you entertained by me. You seem right. like a terrible person. But- this actually makes me think of, of something that... Um- <laughs> That you mentioned a long time ago, this idea of fame. Like when I was when I was writing syrup in my car in my mm-hmm. lunch breaks, um, I was completely focused on the idea of being famous. Like that was my dream oh, to really? be a famous author. And what did you think famous was? Like in that, like when you imagined yourself being famous, mm-hmm. what did you think famous was? Well, I I guess I just thought it was successful. That if you were successful at what you were doing, then then you were famous and people knew who you were and you could find your books prominently displayed on the shelves and. Um, like very few authors actually get that famous, but but what I found is the older I get, the less I care about being famous, and mm. the more I'm interested in just being left alone to, uh-huh. to do what you what want I, to do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Having enough people who like what you do, so that you can just do what you want to do and not have to do anything else. Yeah. Look, I remember this. I think you were talking about a time you got on a plane, um, and it, it might have been Mike Willisy. It was like some you know, there was some very famous TV guy right. who was getting on the plane. Um, 
with you. Uh, and this was like back in the day before you had the profile that you do today. And you, um, you noticed that this guy was putting up with a lot of you know, the haters, basically. We're getting stuck into him. And you talked about the nice level of fame where the people who know who you are all like what you do. But once you get very famous, um, then there are people who see you a lot but don't like what you right. do. Uh, and, and so there is this you've been growing... Forced, you've been forced upon them. Right. Because I, I think, like, it, there, and I absolutely agree with you, there's a certain level like where people who are coming up to you come up to you because they like something that you've done. And that's why they're going to come up to you. And they've had to seek it out. But then there's another level where you're just forced upon people. Mm. Like when they open the newspaper, they see your smiling face there. And for whatever reason, they hate your face. Yes. And and so then they hate you, like, you know, because, yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. And yeah. so you feel like you've got the right level of, you know, you've done well enough that, you know, you don't have to do anything else. Nowadays, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm really happy happy with the fact that, that I have these readers and if people write to me and almost all the time, it's because they really like something yeah. I did. So so that's awesome. Um, and, and I know another time where I was just out um, on the town with you one night, it was many years ago, and, um, and I would notice that, when you'd walk down the street, people would look at you funny. And it was this expression. Now, this is what you do. Um, not you do. This is what, what a person can do to imagine this experience because I can't obviously pull a face um, on the podcast. Mm-hmm. But uh, if you listen to the podcast, you can look at someone like you think you recognize them off the TV, but you're not sure. Yep. And then look at yourself in the mirror when you're doing that. <laughs> and the expression on your face is this kind of serial killer. Am I going to take that person and skin them? It's like this creepy, like intense look that people get. It's true. Uh, and I thought, wow, that's, I mean, it's, it must be nice to have people recognize you, but it must be kind of terrifying as well. Uh, well, I mean, I, I never like I, like th- this is a level of thing that you never want to complain about anything because like if but I the the most confronting one is the just the random like the reason that I wear headphones. The reason I was saying before that I would not have heard that guy if that incident even did occur is because I always walk around in headphones because I always just try to stay in my own space. Because if I stopped for every person who half recognized me or half turned around or half said my name or didn't or like, or even if like, you know, it's weird for me to acknowledge that they've, like, you know what I mean? Like I know like sometimes when I walk down the street, there's someone at the edge of like kind of my vision who's, mm-hmm poking their friend saying something but it's weird for me to like yeah. turn around and give them right. a wave or something <laughs> yeah. so i have to kind of stay in my own world not to make that weird anyway yes so yeah that is i noticed it a lot when i moved to america i was saying to a friend of mine the other day that um one of i didn't realize how much that happened because it's happened so gradually over the years you know like mm. it's you know build up and build up and build up that you don't really it's like putting on weight or losing weight, you know, you don't notice it as much yourself, but if someone mm-hmm. hasn't seen you for, you know, six months. Yeah. And when I moved to America, I noticed because it isn't there. Mm. Like I can walk down the street, I can have lunch with my friends, I can do whatever there is, and there's never a person looking. And there's never a person noticing if you're, you know, your hair's weird or if you're on your phone or if you're in your tracksuit pants or who you're talking to or, or whatever. It doesn't happen. So is that – do you find that a good thing? Or oh, I love you, it. Yeah? Yeah. It's like that's the bit of it that I – it's the bit of it that I – like I love – okay, it's very hard to talk about this, but I – I would like to be as famous as possible so as many people as possible would come to my shows and enjoy my shows. Mm, yeah. And if I could leave it at that, right. like if, it could, if that could be it, yeah. like if, that, if the minute they walked out the door, I was unrecognizable to them, 
that would be my ideal scenario. Mm. Like I yeah, love that lots of people come to the shows. Mm. I love it. Yeah. And I understand that some of what we're talking about is all the other stuff that goes with that to make sure mm. that happens, yeah. right? So I am going to do anything I can do to get as many people to come and see it and enjoy it as possible. But mm. if I could be invisible the rest of the time, yeah, yeah, that would be ideal for me. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. and look, for me, I, I am no longer really keen on being famous. I'm just really happy to to do what I do and if, if people react if some small number of people read the book uh, and really react to it well then I'm thrilled that's about as good as it gets well Lexicon is your latest and yep. uh, I gave it to a, a friend of mine in the US who had never read any of your stuff before and uh, uh, I, I said to you I think when I emailed you that um, I'm, I think I'm going to have to reread it just because sh- she's like I think we're starting a book club just where we only talk about lexicon <laughs> because like she had, you know she really wanted someone she loved it she absolutely you know loved it absolutely. and um, it's been reviewed really well it's like it's it's you know it's out and about now and people can find it but it's it's yeah, been, look, you know, it you did feel, really well. Yeah. I mean, not to, not to boast, Will, but it was named by Time Magazine as one of the top ten books of the year. So well, it's done all right. That's so, a pretty good boast. Yeah, I mean yeah. that that is a boast. When you said not to boast, that was yeah. actually a boast. It's an out and out boast. But, but you know what? That's a good one. That is a great boast. Yeah, like I was I was really happy with this. Tell me about those exciting times. Um, I know I'm trying to finish up, but I'm not really. <laughs> uh, they're, they're, they're vacuuming outside the door. They're going to probably want to come in here in a minute. But I um, uh, I remember. Douglas Copeland. Uh, am I saying that? That, yes. was, that yep. was him. It wasn't, yep. it wasn't it. I'm remembering this right. Now, I remember reading um, – I know Generation X was his kind of big breakthrough book. But I remember when I was at university, I guess, or maybe just when I moved back to Melbourne, reading a book called Microsurfs mm-hmm. that he wrote, which at the time was, I think, one of my favorite books I'd ever read at that point. And I remember, what book was it that he loved? The, didn't he write an editorial in one of the newspapers? Did he review one of your books? Oh, he reviewed, yeah, Company for Company. the New York Times. Yeah. And I remember reading that. And to me, that was exciting. That was, I was exciting, like, yes. I was like, this guy <laughs> who, like, I loved his book, yeah. loves my friend's book. Yeah. Like, yeah, that to me, that was kind of like, that was when it blew my mind a little bit. Yeah. Was that exciting for you to have something like that? Yeah, yeah, it was. That sort of stuff is thrilling. Um, I got a <laughs> similar, but I got a, a tweet from, no, so, someone pointed me at a tweet from the actress um, on Scrubs who played Dr. Cox's wife. I've forgotten the character's name. Anyway, right. I watched every episode of Scrubs. Sure. And so to find out this character has read Lexicon oh, read the and book. really liked it, yeah. recommending it to people, I thought, hey, that's awesome. Yeah, that is, that is awesome. Is there other moments like that along the journey? Yeah, there's lots of little moments. I mean, the wonderful thing about being a bit public is that people do just contact you to say how much they like what you're doing and and people in normal jobs don't get that very often normally people go off and they're uh well my wife's a a teacher so she actually gets little kids saying i love you mrs barry but um that's kind of unusual too you don't get people saying i love you in in most jobs right (laughs) the normal job you know you get a little bit of recognition but but by and large my feeling is that you don't get that constant reassurance and people saying they enjoy what you do so it's it's a real privilege of doing something in public that you get a response a positive response from people like that so those moments, those moments are really wonderful. The emails that come through, or you just have these. I mean, it's terrifying as well because it's, you have the highs and the lows. Like, I, um, I fear that my career is completely over about once every two or three years. Oh well, see, that's interesting to me because, like, for what has come across a lot in this podcast, I think, is that someone you're someone who actually, in some ways, has like 
at least the stories you've told today it feels like you don't have a lot of doubts i mean you're locked in your relationship and your job reasonably early and you've both you've been kind of successful pursuing both of those things so i think it would be interesting the audience just to briefly hear about that idea of like doubts and when you go through that time yeah well i guess yeah it's um i was i was very sure when i was younger and um i guess I'm more realistic these days. So uh-huh. I, I'm, I'm in a really fortunate position. I'm able to write books, which I love full time. Um, I can support myself. Well, I've been able to support myself doing that, I should say. But I, I'm never sure whether it's going to last. Because right. each book I sell, um, I never know if the next one is going to sell. Right. And, you know, Lexicon's done really well, but uh, I, I really should have sold my next book by now. And right. I haven't. And I don't know if anyone's going to like it because I, I, it's, it's only been exposed to me so far. I know I like it, right. but I, I have no idea whether, whether it's going to connect to anyone else. So, um, yeah, no, I have, I have moments all the time where a book comes out and you hope it will sell, you fear it won't. Um, I try not to worry about that too much because um, it interferes a lot with sitting down and, and writing good fiction. But it's, yeah, it's terrifying. You think your career is over and you're going to have to go out and get a real job and um, then like... And how do you so work much. through that? Like is, it just a, like, is it just you acknowledging that this is something that you go through regularly and knowing what it is? Like, you know, not letting it affect too many other parts of your life because you're like, oh no, this is just my nervousness about, you know, this thing that I go through every three years and this is just the process. And, or is it, or do you actually get wrapped up in it in the moment and it feels real? Because when, when you say every two or three years, you know, I worry that it's all going to be over. Are you really worried? Or is that, you know, the kind of, like part yeah. of the pantom, not the pantomime. Oh, no. Every two but or the- three years is like the the complete freak out panic yeah. that maybe I should start looking in the classifieds to to see if there's someone yeah. interested in a guy who can code websites based on fake nations. Yeah, and and, uh, by, and by the way, uh, you've been so long out of a real job that no one looks in the classifieds anymore. I may have just dated myself a little there. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's it, that's the complete freak out. But yeah, the thought of my God, am I ever going to sell another book is, is pretty much constant. I mean, it's, yeah. just, it's just the nature of it. And if I was a different kind of writer, if I was doing a series maybe and, you know, the, the series had been doing pretty well and I knew that I just had to get through the next four or five books and, and I was going to earn a steady paycheck um, along the way, then it, maybe it wouldn't be there. But I would have a different kind of struggle. But um, this is something that a family does to you as well. You become a lot more right. worried about where your career is going to be in five or ten years well it does though i mean of course it does like part of the reason that i can gallivant around the world in a suitcase and go to these weird and wonderful places doing gigs is because i don't have a family and because i can take a risk and because i can roll the dice and go oh well if it doesn't work out i know that i can you know live on a bit less money or i can you know i'll sell the house and i'll get a different house and although it's not just the family too i mean i think when when you've accomplished something, you like when you're a kid starting out, you have nothing to lose. Right. So if you perform, if you publish a book and it bombs, well, you know, big deal. You right. had nothing to start nothing with. to lose. Yeah. But uh, at this point, you know, you have this um, very successful career, and trying something new that doesn't work out actually means that. I don't know if you worry about this, but that people will say, oh, you know, Will did this and it, it was terrible, it didn't work out and it feels like you've, you've lost something. Interesting. Like, I mean, I guess I do worry about that. I worry about it less and less, like, you know, in, in the way that you were saying. Like, I'm certainly at a point in my life where, like, I first and foremost write something for myself. 
like I was saying to my friend uh, Lyndall, who's seen my stand-up show, probably apart from my sister more than anybody else who's ever seen the show. And I said to her, I said, look, I can say this to you um, because you, you know me and you've seen my shows, good or bad, over the years. I said, this one I know is 10% better minimum than anything that I've done before from my own – like, I know. Mm. I'm not cheating in this way in ways I've cheated before, you know? Right. Like, you know, there's, like, this is the first time – this show for me is about as much as what's not in it than what's in it okay. you know there's no gay marriage material there's no refugee stuff there's no jokes about how i look like adam hills there's nothing that like i would consider just cheap easy laughs people things that people you know predict i knew from my internal markets what i wanted to do mm. was and i and i kind of have achieved what i my aim was now it's a journey that i'm going on and i also see that but but i was really happy with what i was at not everybody did love it. Like there was some people who were like, oh, I wish you talked about gay marriage or like, you know. But because I was very happy and I was very confident and most of the people who – the most interesting feedback about this show that I've had was from people who see it every year, it's definitely their favourite show. From people who don't see it every year, they, they, they think it's a good show and they haven't – but like it's – that's the interesting thing to me. It's yeah, like okay. for the people who are my core audience, for the people who are my fans mm. – and for myself, I think I'm serving those things really well. And I just try to do that. Mm. So I kind of think that if I do that, if I try something, you know, and it's in within the realm of my core audience, you're not going to, you know, it's only the people on the periphery that are going to drop in and out depending on, right. you know, what's this one about? Oh, no, I don't really like the sound of that. You know, like I want that people who are just like, oh, no, we like you. And I imagine with you and your books, like – if people went to them going, well, I like science fiction or I like blah, 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 or like, then yes, you've been a bit all over the place. You've got to kind of have that idea of like, oh, no, I like, Ma I like Max Barry books. So when Max Barry puts out a book, like whatever it's about, I'm going to go and read that book. Yeah, that, that only works if there are a lot of people who are already interested in Max Barry right. books, though. It's, uh, it's not something you really want to do to try to build a career as an author. You need right. to, to appeal to people who like a particular type of book. Yeah, oh, I mean, but particularly in your in books, right? Because it is so genre driven. Like, it's really interesting in some ways that it is so genre driven. Because, like, but but it is. You know, people have that sort of. I like this mm. sort of book, or I like that sort of book, and yeah, which yeah, I think is fair enough because there are so many books out there. Mm -hmm. You walk into a bookstore, they're they're turning over these new releases. I think, I think a new release stays on the shelf for about two weeks, three weeks, and then off it goes, and something new's there. So. So no one has time to read all those books. You, right. need, you need a way to find good books in a hurry. So, so yeah, it's look, I, I'm just really thrilled to be where I am. Um, I'm terrified of losing it um, on a, a daily basis pretty much. But, but um, I, I, I'm really happy if I can just keep going, doing what I'm doing at the moment where I'm, I'm writing stories, I'm connecting with, with people who enjoy them, um, and I'm, I'm working from home in the same house as, as my wife and my daughters. And that's... If I can keep doing that for a bit longer and, and keep a roof over our heads, I'll be thrilled. Max Barry, thank you very much. Thank you.
I can't be without you 